Well, good morning. Show us Christ and show us ourselves, too. That is my prayer this morning, that we would see Christ and we would also see ourselves. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, if you will. There's no need to adjust your TV sets. I am not Jonathan. It's great to hear you all sing this morning at the front. I'm usually standing at the back and I hear me a lot and that's not good. So to hear all of you where I can't hear myself, that uh, was really nice. As we look here in, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem for the last time. The couple of stories we're going to look at, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have both incidents in order. And so we're going to look at them together. Jesus is always teaching. He's teaching his disciples. He's teaching the crowds that follow along. And he's a demanding teacher. He wants everything to be just right. He requires that things be just so. Kind of got me thinking about demanding teachers that I had in school. One in particular came to mind. Did anybody else have a demanding teacher in school or everything had to be just right? My ninth grade biology teacher was like that. He was, to say the least, way too zealous about biology for me. Science was never my thing. I didn't really care that much to begin with, and so uh, it was a little rough. Among the many overzealous things he made us do was he made us write two two 25-page research papers, ninth grade. And of course, these had to be typed, not on a computer, kids, <laughs> but on a typewriter. And he insisted that there be no mistakes. Remember typing and trying to correct a mistake that you see up at the top of the page and trying to get to the right place. And if you use the eraser, you end up going through the paper and you got a hole in the paper, so you got to start over. And so he insisted on no errors. And he had a very particular title page format and a, he wanted a table of contents and and a bibliography or works cited. And everything had to be just right. And although I didn't enjoy old Mr. Smith's biology class, I did learn a lot. And I'm sure his goal was that we would learn. 
It was for our good. You know, Jesus, he doesn't let anything pass by. He doesn't let any error go. In this passage, he's teaching his disciples. And again, as we see often, he's correcting them, wanting them to learn because he's about to go away. He's being a stickler, and it's for their good. He's teaching them about who he is, about what God requires of them. There's nothing more important than what Jesus addresses here. He's teaching that salvation is his way, and that's the, that's the only way. So let's look in Mark 10. I'm going to read verses 13 through, through 16 as we begin here. This first section says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So if you are following along on the notes, if you've got the the extra notes, um, this first section, the children received, received. They were received. And it's an interesting word that is used here by Mark for children. It's the same word used uh, in several other places in the New Testament for infants, babies. It's the same word used in Luke 1 when John the Baptist leaped or leapt in his mother's womb when he heard Mary's voice. And so it's likely that we're talking babies here that were being brought to Jesus. Now, you can kind of understand. The disciples here, they probably see themselves as kind of gatekeepers uh, to some extent. They had to filter the crowds, people wanting to see Jesus, people wanting to get next to him, to talk to him. And so they are not encouraging people, yeah, yeah, bring your babies to Jesus. They were being very practical. I sometimes hear I'm kind of a gatekeeper, I feel like, uh, answering the phones here at the church. Every salesperson that calls, you know who they want to talk to? They want to talk to Jonathan. They have to talk to Jonathan. I mean, they need to talk to him and only him. Because they think they can sell him on their product or service, whatever it may be. And I have to say, oh, I'm sorry, he's not available right now. I don't say he probably cares less about your product than I do. I don't say that. (laughs) But that's what I'm thinking. But I shield him from salespeople. I don't give him all the mail that comes addressed to him. I'm a bit of a gatekeeper. I'm sure the disciples, in the same way, felt like they were performing a valuable service for Jesus. But Jesus didn't look at it the same way here in this passage. Mark says he was indignant because of the disciples' attitudes and their actions here. These children, these infants, were important to Jesus. He laid his hands on them. He received them. 
He saw the children and he said, to such belongs the kingdom of God. It's people like this who enter the kingdom of God. Disciples, are you listening? Crowds, are you listening? So we'll move on now to the the rich young man that comes next. We'll get back to the, the children in a little bit. In verse 17, we'll start reading there. As he was setting out on his journey, a, ran, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Verse 23, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man... It is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. So as we look at this young man that comes to Jesus, what do we know about this guy? Luke tells us in his account of this story that he was a ruler, most likely a a ruler of the synagogue. Matthew's account describes him as young. It would be very rare that a young man would be a synagogue ruler. But we know that he's rich, too. And since this young man was rich, it's likely that his wealth was inherited. Either that or he got into crypto really early. (laughs) And notice that he runs up to Jesus, he falls on his knees, running right into the middle of this crowd, Evidently, he's not embarrassed. He takes this position of humility, kneeling before him. I mean, this guy is serious, and he's motivated and anxious. And so, the question, that blank there, what must I do? What must I do? He just blurts out this question immediately. I mean, you talk about a sense of urgency here. thing is, we don't even know who he thought Jesus was. Maybe he thought Jesus was God or the Messiah. Maybe not. Maybe he was just struck by Jesus' teaching and his life. Figured he must have some secret to eternal life. He does seem sincere in wanting to know. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus gives a two-part answer that may seem kind of strange at first. His answer number one, the next blank there, is goodness. Goodness. He addresses the idea of goodness. He, he, was, he was challenging the young man. I don't, he wasn't trying to put him off, though. He was trying to draw him to himself. And of course, he's not claiming that he's not God, but rather, it's like he's saying, don't use the word good so lightly unless you're calling me God. Think about goodness, young man. God is the only one who is truly good. He's, no one else is completely good but God. So Jesus is being a stickler here for a good reason. His answer number two, the command, the command. He tells the man what to do in, his, in the second part of this answer. He refers him to the Ten Commandments, or some of them. Basically saying, you, you know what's good, or you know what good things are in the, are in the law, go, go do them. Why these commands? Why not the first few commandments that have to do with our relationship with God? Maybe because men judge outward appearances and that kind of made sense for this guy? We don't know exactly. Let's look at the, the man's response. The man's response. One word with an exclamation point. Done. I have kept those commands and actually it was pretty easy there must be something really hard that I have to do to get eternal life come on I've kept all these commands from my youth I've got it covered and maybe he felt like he really had kept all those commands and he was probably well known the crowd around him may have affirmed that, may have said, yeah, you know, this guy, he's a really good guy. But he doesn't truly examine himself against the law. And that's what Jesus is pushing him to do. Examine yourself against the law. What is Jesus' response? It's love. Love. The Bible says Jesus looked at him and loved him. You might think this guy's a knucklehead. But Jesus looked at him and loved him. And this love here is, is the, the highest kind. It's beyond mere affection. Jesus is glad that this guy has come to him for a solution to his problem. What's his answer? Jesus' answer is, you know it well, sell all. Sell all. You lack one thing, but that one thing is everything. Sell all, not to, not to earn salvation, but to remove the barrier between you and God. 
This man couldn't sell everything without trusting God completely. He had to be willing to surrender it all. Jesus was saying, if you really love me, if you really love God as much as you love you, you'll do this. Then you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Man's response, sorrow. He was sorrowful because he had great possessions and he couldn't bear to part with them. And Jesus has exposed this man's heart. He has exposed his true love. But the man does not repent of his sin. He's sorrowful, but not because of his sin. He's sorrowful because he didn't get what he wanted. You think of Zacchaeus in Luke 19. When Jesus came to him, he, this guy changed. Man, you could tell. He was willing to get rid of everything. I'll pay back people I've cheated. I'll do anything I need to do. Sometimes the short guys can teach us something. This guy was only sorrowful because he didn't get what he wanted. Let's look at the teaching here. The first part of that is the difficulty. The difficulty. It's interesting that Jesus does not thunder condemnation down on this guy. And even in verse 24, he, he calls the crowd children. He has a tender affection for these people. And he seems sad about the things that tempt man. Sorrowful about the idols that we have. And he says it's difficult for those with wealth to enter God's kingdom, to, to have eternal life. And he said it twice, in verse 23 and then again in verse 24. And the disciples, it says, were amazed at his words in verse 24. And then in verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished by what he was saying here. Seems like they were still kind of thinking like the world. This idea that riches meant that you had favor with God. Jesus is saying riches actually make it more difficult to gain eternal life. I like the, in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you have heard it said, but I tell you, having to change their way of thinking. Now, some of you out there are thinking, well, this certainly doesn't have anything to do with me because I'm not wealthy. And it may be true that in the United States in 2024, you're not wealthy compared to many others. Jesus doesn't tell us exactly what he means by wealthy here, does he? But would he have meant those who have all of their needs met and plenty more? Having enough to live on for several months? 
maybe even years. Ouch, that's getting a little close to home, isn't it? Would someone like that have been thought of as wealthy in Jesus' day? It would certainly seem so. In a day when people probably lived day to day. So even though you or I may not have 10 or 20 million dollars in the bank, many of us may very well be wealthy according to the standard that Jesus is using here. Wealthy compared to those in Jesus' day. And actually, most of us are probably wealthy compared to the vast majority of our world today. Something we might want to think about before we quickly dismiss this and decide, ah, this doesn't apply to me. There's not just a difficulty, there's the possibility. The second part of the, what Jesus has to say, he does say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom. Just saying that that's a way of saying something is impossible. The disciples ask, well, now if the rich are going to have such a tough time entering the kingdom, then who can be saved? They are perplexed. They can't figure this out. This does not make sense to them. But Jesus gives them hope. It's impossible with man, but, with all, but all things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. There is hope there. He leaves them with hope. Well, that's the stories. Let's look at a few points of application here. As we compare the children and the young man, what do we see in these babies and the young man? The first thing there is dependence versus independence. Dependence versus independence. These babies were brought to Jesus. They had to be brought to him while... This man ran right up to him. The babies obviously can't really do anything for themselves. They're helpless. And when Jesus says, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, it's not because infants are humble. They're not. Anybody that has ever had an infant knows that they're not really humble, are they? But they are completely dependent. And that's why they call out when they're hungry, when they're sick, when they need something. They call out. It's something we have to recognize in salvation. We are all in need of God's mercy and grace. We have to recognize our dependence. And then, after salvation, the idea is to stay completely dependent. Upon him, and we sang about that a few minutes ago. Most people are willing to admit that they've sinned, they've done something wrong, they've thought something wrong, but not too many are willing to admit that they are helpless, completely dependent. 
This man wouldn't admit it. He had things together. He didn't think he was so needy. Back before we came here, well, I guess we were here for a little bit. Before I joined the staff here, it was between churches, and I sold water treatment systems for homes. Let me tell you, if you ever need a good salesman, you come to me, and I'll try to find you one. (laughs) I can tell you that I was not a good salesman. But I did sell uh, one to a very wealthy guy one night, and afterwards we were talking about it, and I said, well, why did you buy it? And he said, well, I've got a really great house here. But he said, I think this will make it even better. It seems like that's kind of this young man's attitude in our story here. I'm doing great. But I heard about this eternal life thing, and I'm interested. So I'd like to get it and add it on to my life to make it even better. I'd like to kind of get things nailed down for the future. Paul Washer says, The gospel doesn't call us to receive Christ as an addition to our life, but as our life. This young man didn't seem to to grasp that. Second thing is we compare the babies and the young man is nothing to offer versus much to offer. Nothing to offer versus much to offer, at least from a uh, human standpoint. The babies obviously weren't going to add anything to Jesus They weren't going to add anything to the kingdom. They were not going to be able to pass along his teachings to others, at least not for quite a while. Um, They couldn't help corral the crowds. They couldn't help plan the next trip. There just wasn't a whole lot they could offer. But this young man now, he had it all. He was young, he was wealthy, he was influential. He could be a real contributor to the cause. Man, just think of the possibilities. Why am I pointing this out? I want us to look at how the disciples treated them. The parents of the babies were rebuked for bringing those children to Jesus. I mean, you can picture them saying, hey, he's too busy. He doesn't have time for this. But then, what seems to be moments later maybe, this man runs right up to him. Seems like there were probably 12 disciples somewhere close by. Nobody stops him? No. As they're in the middle of the conversation, nobody says, hey, pal, come on. Get out of here. We don't have time for this. Maybe they knew he had a lot to offer. They didn't want to discourage him. We have to be careful maybe about doing that kind of 
You might call it triage for God. This person wouldn't really be that much of an asset to the kingdom anyway, so I'm not going to worry about, about them too much. But this person, boy, they have so much to offer. I better really, better really pay attention to them, better really work on them. You have to be careful. We don't know, do we? Next point of application, love means telling the truth. Love means telling the truth. Jesus loved this young man and told him the truth. Again, picture this. This guy walks up and says, what do I have to do to get eternal life? The most important question in the universe. What could be better? I mean, isn't that what we want? We want people to just walk up and say, hey, you know, what about that Jesus? How do I, how do I get eternal life? This is what happens. It's right there for him. Could Jesus have gotten him to make a decision? Pray a prayer? Probably. But Mark tells us that Jesus, Jesus loved the man, but he wanted him to see that he couldn't have salvation on his own terms. That there's only one way to be saved. We have to recognize that we've sinned against a holy God. That sin, and that, that sin means that we deserve death. And we're helpless to do anything to save ourselves. So we turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Trusting in his death on the cross to satisfy God's wrath. And when we talk to people, we have to love them enough to tell them the truth. That there is no negotiating with God. There aren't enough good works you can do. There aren't enough bad works that you can refrain from to earn your way with God. Final point of application here. Possessions are not an indication of God's favor. Possessions are not an indication of God's favor. This man was very wealthy, but had no treasure in heaven. One commentator said this guy was the worst businessman because he was offered eternal life and he turned it down. He could have had it for what he owned and he turned it down. And of course, in the same way, someone who is poor doesn't necessarily have treasure in heaven either. I imagine most of us here would reject the prosperity gospel. But you know, even though we know better, there are times we may be tempted to kind of slip into that. Why does that person have more than me? Does God love them more? Why am I having these problems? Is God mad at me? You know, God wants to show His glory, His greatness to a, a lost and dying world. But He doesn't do that through Christians who have 
more money and more stuff than others. He's glorified when we're willing to give up the things or thing the thing or things that we hold dearest for his sake. That's when he's glorified. So Jesus here in this passage makes it clear that salvation is on his terms and only his terms. That it's all of God's grace and we are dependent on that. And that's really good news for folks like us who can't earn salvation. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it truly is good news that Christ has come to save sinners like us who have no other hope, who are helpless and hopeless apart from your mercy and your grace in sending Christ. Lord, help us to view these things rightly, to view possessions rightly, to see our need for you, regardless of our our wealth or lack of it. Father, teach us to trust in you, that you might be glorified, that folks might see what you have done in our lives, how you have changed us, how you have made us new, and might want to know who Jesus is and how to have eternal life. It's in Jesus' name I pray.